Let's all turn in our Bibles this morning to Mark's Gospel. We're going to be in chapter 6, covering verses 1 to 6 this morning. Father, I lift up, Lord, this time in Your Word. And Lord, as we have gathered together as a church, Lord, this is a time to equip to equip our, our own hearts and our own minds, Lord, uh, to go into this world, to be a witness for You. Lord, we're living in desperate days. And I know that there are a lot of people in this world today that are searching for answers. Uh, they're without hope. And, and Lord, we possess that hope. We possess that good news. We have it, Lord, and we can give it out. We can give it away. And Lord, I just pray that You would continue, Lord, to stir Your church. I pray that You would put it upon Your people's heart, Lord, to, to come out and to take those steps of faith, to look for opportunities during the week to be a witness for You. And we thank You for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I titled this morning's message... A question of unbelief. And I wonder how many of us here can think about the days when we lived in unbelief. Those days before Christ. The days maybe when we might have even called ourselves an atheist. We had no belief. We certainly didn't believe in Jesus Christ. We didn't see the need for Him in our life. We didn't see Him as being the only way to God. And then there came that point in your life where you, the blinders were removed. You came to, to a place in your life where you realized that Jesus was and is your only hope. And you turned from unbelief to believing in Jesus Christ. And and many of us, if not all of us here this morning, I believe we've said and, and, and experienced this life-changing work of Jesus Christ. From unbelief to believing in Jesus Christ. And look what He's done in your life. And look what He wants to do. I've been sharing a lot about faith especially the last couple weeks, we've learned about how the disciples, how they came short on faith when they were in that boat. We learned a couple of weeks ago, I, I shared a message, and a, and a, a message on faith, and it was the kind of faith that pleases God. And we read out of Hebrews chapter 11, and in verse 6, we're told that without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And, and just think of that. Without faith, it's impossible. It's literally impossible. We can't even come to God unless we come by the way of faith. That's how a person gets saved. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. That's the kind of faith that pleases God. We finished chapter 5 a few weeks back with Jesus raising a 12-year-old girl from the dead. How's that for a miracle? 
taking and and raising this 12-year-old girl. And in that house on that day, Peter and James and John were there in that room. The parents of this young girl were in that room. And and Jesus stood there at the bedside of this 12-year-old girl. And He said to this little girl, He says, Arise. And we're told that the girl stood to her feet and she began to walk as if nothing had even happened. A miracle took place. His disciples were an eyewitness. The parents were an eyewitness. And what a faith builder. I mean, just just put yourself in that room. If you would have been there and, and seen this young girl raised from the dead, they stood there, we're told, and, and, and they, they were overcome with amazement. Wouldn't you be? If you saw somebody raised from the dead, overcome with an amazement. I'm not sure what that looked like. But I have a fa- feeling if you looked at their faces, their, their, their jaw would have been down to the floor. He just raised this girl who was dead. He raised her to life again. And you see, that picture, that miracle, that's for us. To have that hope of eternal life. That Jesus Himself will one day raise you from the dead. If you were to die today and you know Christ, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. That's our hope. That's our confidence. It's what we're trusting in. That Jesus Christ even has has the ability to raise the dead to life again. Today we're going to see Jesus doing something that is pretty amazing to me. He's actually marveling at people in unbelief. We already learned about a time where Jesus marveled at a man because of his belief. Because of his great faith. Remember the centurion who had just came to Jesus and said, my servant is dying. Would you come to my house and and would you heal him? And And the centurion, all he had to do, he sent people to Jesus and said, Jesus, you don't even need to come to my house. I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof. But if you'll just say the word. If you'll just say the word, my servant will be healed. And we're told that Jesus, hearing those words, that He marveled at that Roman centurion's faith. He marveled at that. He said, I haven't seen so great a faith in all of Israel. Jesus marveling at unbelief. And then marveling at great faith. We know that Jesus, when He was looking and overlooking Jerusalem one day in Luke chapter 13, He looked over the city of Jerusalem and He he began to be burdened with what He saw. And And it says that He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
He's thinking of the people as he's looking at them wandering around down there on the Temple Mount. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. He says, oh, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But then he says this, but they were not willing. They weren't willing to come. They weren't willing to believe. We can look ahead in chapter 9 of Mark's Gospel and we can see a father that comes to Jesus because his son has an evil spirit within him. And he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child He cries out and he says with tears in his eyes, Lord, would you help my unbelief? How many times have we maybe had to utter that prayer to the Lord? There's situations that we encounter in life that sometimes we feel that we don't have enough faith to believe in our God, that He is able to meet the need, that He's able to intervene. And God, would you help my unbelief? Would you help me to stand upon even the things that I don't know? How it's going to work out? I can't figure it out, but God, I believe in you. Would you help my unbelief? And I believe that maybe many of us this morning might need to pray that same prayer. God, would you help my unbelief? You see, God is in the midst in a powerful way amongst His people that are believing in Him. People that are exercising faith. People that are taking steps of faith. They're believing in Him. They're standing in prayer. They're they're doing all of these things that that are really putting a smile on our Lord's face. He's amazed when He sees even your faith. When He sees you take great steps of faith. But God, would You help my unbelief? You see, unbelief, by definition, is an absence of faith. It's when we don't have enough faith to really believe that God is able. God, would you help me with my unbelief? You see, believing doesn't always require seeing, does it? There's many things that we don't see with our eyes, but we still believe. Remember what Jesus told Thomas after his resurrection. And Thomas couldn't believe unless he could see. Unless I could touch. Unless I could see the nail prints. I I, I don't have it. I, I can't believe. And Jesus says, blessed are those who don't see, yet they believe. That's the kind of faith that pleases God. Look at your Bibles at Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 1. We read, Then Jesus, He went out from there, speaking about the town of Capernaum that He was ministering from. And He came to His own country, and His disciples followed Him. 
His own country that is being spoken of here is the small town of Nazareth. Nazareth was only 20 miles. It was a one-day walk there, 20 miles from Capernaum. It was that hometown of our Lord. It's where where our Lord was raised by his parents, Joseph and Mary. He's going back to his hometown now from Capernaum. And he's going there to be a witness. And his disciples are following after him. And I don't believe that when he arrived in that town of Nazareth, I don't believe that he came there just for a homecoming with the family and friends, though they were there. I believe that when Jesus came, he came for the purpose of bringing the gospel to the people there of Nazareth. But it was going to also be a time that he was going to teach again his lessons to his disciples. You see, we're going to see next week that Jesus is going to then gather his disciples to himself and he's going to send them out on their own. This was going to be the time now where the disciples were going to go forth with the gospel themselves. Jesus had already invested a couple of years into these disciples' lives. Now it was time for them to go experience what it is to go out on their own and take the gospel out to this world. They were going to learn something there in Nazareth on that day. Jesus himself was going to be confronted with people within his own hometown, people that had hearts of unbelief. The disciples following Jesus, as he walked into Nazareth on that day, it would have been a common scene. You see, rabbis or teachers, as they traveled around from city and town to town, they would come into these cities and go to the synagogue and they would have an open forum to be able to read the Scriptures to the people. And they typically would have their own disciples that would follow after them. And so Jesus walking in with His disciples into Nazareth, it would have been a common scene for the people to see. They would have gone right to the synagogue, the meeting place for the community, the social gathering for the people to hear the Word of God taught. They would, have, uh, they would have arrived there in that place. And the people there would have seen Jesus and seen His followers. And, and it would, probably would have been an automatic opportunity for Jesus to be able to stand there and open His mouth in the synagogue. Just like the Apostle Paul used to go and travel when he planted churches, the first thing he would do would be to find the synagogue in the city because he knew at an open forum to preach the Gospel. But we know that Jesus, back in in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 4, verse 16, that there was another time that Jesus arrived in this city. This was about two years earlier than the occasion that we're reading here in Mark's Gospel. He went back to his hometown, and we read, you can turn there, Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 16. We read, so Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, his hometown, where he was raised. And as his custom was, 
we're told, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Again, this was a a common practice. A a rabbi, a teacher coming into a, a synagogue and the attendant, the one that oversaw the synagogue, would be able to walk over to that that teacher and to be able to hand a scroll to them and allow them to be able to stand up and to read the scriptures. They did that on this day. And Jesus went in and the attendant there brought Jesus a scroll that he held in his hands. And Jesus, as he took this scroll, it was from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when, we're, when he opened the book, when he opened the scroll, he found the place where it was written on that scroll out of Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. And Jesus simply rolled through the scroll and found those scriptures. And this is what he said to the people on that day. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He was speaking of Himself because He has anointed me to preach the Gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The Jews that were in the synagogue on that day, they would have known that Isaiah 61 was speaking of a a coming Messiah and the ministry that it would have been for the Messiah. And then Jesus closed the book, we're told, in verse 20. He gave it back to the attendant and then He sat down. And that was typically what the teacher would do. Now He was in a position that He was going to expound upon what He had just read. And we're told that the eyes of all the people that were in that synagogue were fixed upon Jesus. Can you get that picture in your mind? They were fixed upon Him, anticipating what He was now going to say in regards to that. He just pointed, and they knew that. He was pointing those Scriptures to Himself. Jesus knew their hearts. He knew their hearts of unbelief. And they were just sitting there fixed upon Him, waiting for what He would say. And Jesus began to say to them in verse 21, and He said this one line, today this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, right now, it's fulfilled in your hearing as I just read to you Isaiah 61 Verse 1 and 2, it's fulfilled this day in your hearing. And we're told that all who were there bore witness to Him. They marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of His mouth. I mean, those truly are gracious words, aren't they? To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and liberty for those that are oppressed. Those are words and gracious words. They bore witness to Him. They marveled at His gracious words. But then their mind took over. 
But then they started to think. And they said, is this not Joseph? This is Joseph's son. The one that is standing there reading to us Isaiah 6 and pointing that to himself. This is Joseph's son. He said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me. Jesus is saying this to them now. You're going to say, and whether they said it with their lips and he heard them say it, or he was just anticipating what they were thinking in their heart, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. That's what they were thinking, at least in their hearts. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country, is what they were saying to Jesus. The miracles that we heard, some of the miracles that we even witnessed that you're doing over there in Capernaum, why don't you do those miracles here? They were looking for a sign. Well, prove yourself, Jesus. Prove who you say you are. Then He said to them, knowing their hearts of unbelief, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. He's talking about his hometown. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon. What Jesus is saying to them is that the prophet Elijah was sent not to the house of Israel, not to the many people that were there uh, in great famine that were his own people, but Elijah was sent to Zarephath, who was a Gentile. How do you think that sounded? in the ears of those Jews that were sitting in that synagogue that day, to the region of Sidon, a Gentile area, to a woman who was a widow. That's who he was sent to. And then he goes on to say, and many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elijah the prophet, another prophet. And none of them was cleansed except Nahum, The Syrian, another Gentile he's pointed out. So all of those in the synagogue, listen to what happens now. After these words, as they were fixed upon him, and he makes these words, the people that were in the synagogue, they heard these things, and it says they were filled with wrath. Jesus just pointed a finger at them. He knew their hearts of unbelief. That he wasn't even, they weren't even respecting him because he was in his own hometown. They were too close to Jesus. Remember, Jesus had 30 years in this city, in this town, it really was, growing up for 30 years before he began his public ministry. They knew Jesus. He's the son of Joseph and Mary. And we're told that they were filled with wrath and they arose from their seats. They took hold of Him. They thrust Him out of the city. They led Him out to the brow of the hill which was there in that city. And and they 
sought to throw him over the side of the cliff. And then we're told, and this is really a miracle of Jesus, he passed through the midst of them because it wasn't his time and he went his way. The people literally took him out of that synagogue, took him outside the city to a cliff and were ready to throw him over the side of the cliff. Gracious words that they marveled at. Until he pointed the finger at them. Until he made the claim that this applies to me. Think about the people. Think about the hearts of those people that would want to throw him over the side of a cliff for the words that he just spoke. We might call these people the religious people of the day. You know how we have religious people today? We might call them the churchgoers. We might, we might say that these were the people that you would never think that would do something like that. To want to throw him over the side of the cliff for the words that he just spoke. These were the religious people of the day. And you see, Jesus is never impressed with religion. He's never impressed by good church attendance. Though it's good to attend church, though it's good to be regular, He's not impressed by it. It's, it's not really what puts a smile on our Lord's face. He wants us to be more than that as Christians. He wants us to be people that not only believe, but we put feet to our faith. You see, a heart without Christ is a wicked thing, isn't it? You see how, how pride is so ugly? We've all experienced that. The ugliness of pride. Pride simply says, I don't need God. Jesus in the synagogue that day, He pricked the pride of the hearts of these people. He spoke the truth to them. He prophesied concerning them. And it led them, it led their pride-filled hearts to unbelief. They wanted to throw him over a cliff because of their hardness of heart. Listen how the prophet Jeremiah speaks about the heart of the people of Judah in his day. Jeremiah 17.1, it says, The sin of Judah is written, listen to how it puts it, the sin of Judah, this is God's people, is written with a pen of iron, with the point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart. You know what that is, you know, the pen of an iron, the tip like a diamond, that tells you that's a hard heart. It goes on in verse 9 and 10 of that chapter. And it says this, The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. And who can know it? The Lord searches the heart. He tests the mind. Even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. You see, God is the one that sees our heart. 
He can see our hearts this morning as we're sitting here. He knows every thought that's going through our mind. He knows how pliable our hearts are or how hard they are. And we don't want to be those type of people that it, that, that it takes a diamond tip pen to make any kind of an impression upon our heart at all. That was God's people. That was the prophet Jeremiah speaking to Judah, telling them you have a hard heart. Look back at Mark's Gospel at verse 2. Jesus now comes back into His hometown. This is two years later. After that incident of wanting to throw Him over the cliff, He comes back to His hometown of Nazareth for the second time. And we read in verse 2, when the Sabbath had come, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing Him were told were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to Him that such mighty works are performed by His hands? They were astonished at how Jesus taught. You see, they were probably used to many different teachers coming into the synagogue. They would stand up and they would read the Scriptures to the people. And that in itself, they probably were happy with that. But you see, Jesus was one that He expounded upon these things. They heard Him speaking things about the Scriptures and wisdom that they hadn't heard before. They were astonished at the way that He taught with the wisdom in which He gave application to the things that He was saying. We've never heard anyone teach like this. He said that, and it was said that of Him compared to the Pharisees even and the scribes. They were astonished at how He taught. They, 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 they saw the wisdom in what He was saying. And isn't that the way it is when the Word of God is mixed with the Holy Spirit of God? Do you know what comes out of it? Wisdom and application. Whenever the Word of God is taught and the Holy Spirit is in that, there's application, there's wisdom, and people are filled and people hear application. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we read this about the Word of God. The Word of God, it's living. And it's also powerful. And it's also sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing. Do you get these words? It's living, it's powerful, it's sharper, it's piercing. And it says it's piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit. In other words, God's Word is able to get down into the very nitty-gritty of your heart. It can get into the recesses, the things that you try to hide from God, the excuses that you make. His Word is able to unveil those things and bring them to light. That's the Word of God. It's a discerner, it goes on to say, of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. If you really want to know about yourself, just read God's Word. There's much that He'll tell you about yourself and how we are and how we often respond. 
the little faith that we have, and the great, you know, you learn a lot. Because God knows our hearts. He knows man's heart. When the people rejected the truth of the Gospel that day in Nazareth, it wasn't because there was a problem with Jesus' teaching. It wasn't even the message that He brought to them. It wasn't the fact that Jesus wasn't a good communicator and they're just angry at the fact that He's not a good teacher. It was because the people were unwilling to yield to the truth of the Gospel. Their hearts were uh, hearts of unbelief. And they had these hearts that were unwilling to yield. What they heard with their ears and what they saw with their eyes, they still couldn't believe. Their hearts were set in unbelief. That's a dangerous place to be. The heart and the mind of a person that is able to receive truth is a heart that God has prepared. It's eyes that have been unveiled to see, to understand, to perceive. But if somebody sits with a heart of unbelief, if they're set in their heart in unbelief, then they remain in that state. In a sense, a heart of unbelief is a, is a heart that remains skeptical. Were any of you skeptical before you came to know Christ? It's a heart that remains cynical. Were any of you that way before you gave your life to Christ? It's a heart that is hardened by pride. It's a mind that's been seared, in a sense, with a hot iron. And because it's become numb to sin. You see, when a person refuses to believe, when a person is in unbelief, it's it's clearly seen. It's clearly known. It's, It's why they took him out to throw him over the side of that cliff. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. He says, but even if the gospel is veiled, what's a veil? A veil is something that would hide something, right? But even if the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, even if it's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. You see, we all have people that we love that don't know Christ. We have people that are spiritually blinded to the Gospel. And we know that they are. And But what we do is we pray, God, would You unveil their blinded eyes? Would You prepare and soften their hearts so that when that person comes along to share the Gospel, they might have open eyes for that moment to see and to be able to receive the Gospel? God, I know that there are people in my own family that they they need to have their eyes unveiled. They need to have You soften their hard heart. 
to take them out of a place of unbelief to a place of believing. It, re it requires the unveiling of those blinded eyes. We're told that many who heard Jesus teach that day, they were astonished. They acknowledged the mighty works. They, they had probably heard. Some of them had been over. It's only 20 miles away. They'd been to Capernaum. They may have witnessed some of the miracles Jesus did. They, they'd heard of the, the... Remember, the miracles were spreading. His fame was spreading throughout all of Galilee by this time. As a matter of fact, we read in Mark 1.28, it says immediately His fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. So this wasn't anything that was done in the dark. Jesus' name and who He was and what He was doing and what He was saying was being made known throughout all of Galilee. But what's the difference? He's back in His hometown. And why are these people responding to Jesus differently? The problem that the people had there in Nazareth was not the truth. It was because it was an issue of they needed evidence. It was an issue of unbelief in their hearts. You see, they knew who Jesus was. They lived with Jesus. In those 30 years when He was being raised in that city there, that town, it's believed that Joseph passed away probably early on in those years. And it could have been Jesus living with His mother and with His brothers and sisters there in Nazareth. Kind of taking that lead role there. And so He remained. He was there for 30 years. The last time that we hear anything of Jesus in Scripture was when He was 12 years old, when He was in the temple there in Jerusalem. And His parents found Him there, sitting there with the scribes, dialoguing with them. At 12 years old, and then from the age 12 all the way to age 30, before he began his public ministry, we have these silent years that we don't see or anything about Jesus. What was going on in all of those years as Jesus was being raised and living in this, even to a young man living there in Nazareth? He had brothers and sisters that were there with him. Look at verse 3. This is what tripped them up. Is this not the carpenter, they said? The son of Mary and brother of James and Joses, Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And then it says, and because of that, they were offended at him. They couldn't wrap their head around this thought. He is speaking as if he is a prophet. He is speaking as if He is coming here with these truths. And we know who His parents are. We know His brothers and sisters. And that offended them. You see, the issue was that they needed, to, they needed more of than just a good teacher. They needed more than just mighty works and miracles. They needed to have their hearts of unbelief changed. You see, sometimes we think that if something really powerful, like 
even raising somebody from the dead, that that might be enough. Wouldn't you think that it would? You raise somebody from the dead, and that would be pretty powerful to where somebody might say, yes, I do believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the coming one. For no one can truly raise somebody from the dead, and no one can truly forgive sins like you have done, unless he be the Son of God, the Messiah. But you remember the story of the beggar who was taken by angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man who died and was buried, and the rich man was there in torment. And he, and he saw across Agave, he says, I have five brothers, he says, send someone back from the dead to go tell them so they won't come to this place of torment. He was there in Hades. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and they have the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. They will. Just send somebody back from the dead. They'll truly repent. I don't want them to come to this place. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rises from the dead. It's not enough. Even if you were to raise somebody from the dead, it's not enough. For a heart that is set in unbelief, No miracle will even change that. They'll even attribute it. They'll say, you know, Satan did that. Demon did that. You know, there were demons working through Jesus. You know, that's what they did. That's a heart of unbelief. You see, every religion today, besides historic Christianity, they put a question mark next to Jesus. That question mark that they put next to Jesus is because... They make Jesus to be a different Jesus than what we find in the Bible. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that Jesus is a created being by Jehovah God. That He is the ransom sacrifice that God created to go to the cross for man's sins. And that He is actually just a little God, but He is not Jehovah God. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was a man just like you and I. But he became a God. And you can become a God just like him. A different kind of a Jesus, isn't it? Islam teaches that Jesus was just a prophet of God. But he wasn't Allah. He's just a prophet of God. Other groups say that he was a great teacher. He was a moral man. He was a just man, but he wasn't the Messiah. He's not the one we're looking for. Even Israel, God's own people, stumbled over him that he was who he claimed to be. Christianity teaches and believes what the Bible says about Jesus. He is God in flesh. He's all God and he's all man. He's a God-man. In John 8, 19, the Pharisees asked Jesus one day, where is your father, Jesus? And Jesus answered, he says, you know neither me 
nor my Father. If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. He put them in their place, didn't He? Those that want to approach Jesus with these questions of unbelief, He put them in their place. If you would have known Me, you would have known My Father also. Look at verse 4 back in our text. But Jesus said to them, speaking about the people that were there in the synagogue, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. How many of you can relate to that? How many of you have family members that really didn't like the idea when you said you were a Christian now? I mean, this is my mom and dad. I mean, this is my brother and sister. These are people I love, but as soon as you gave your life to Christ, what's all this about? What's this new thing? And and we really realize how much the spiritual battle that rages even within a family. Here's Jesus coming into His own hometown. He comes in as a prophet. He comes into the, the synagogue to preach the Gospel. And a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. John 7.5 tells us this, for even Jesus' brother, brothers did not believe in Him. He's in His hometown. He's there where His brothers live. And even His own brothers didn't believe in Jesus. We know that they did later on. We know at least... Two of them wrote two of the New Testament books, James and Jude. They came to a saving faith, but it wasn't until after the resurrection. Isn't that amazing? Here's Jesus' own half-brothers. They didn't believe. We know that a, uh, when the, a prophet would typically come into a city, uh, generally speaking, the people would honor that prophet. They would know that this prophet was there as a mouthpiece for God. And whenever he'd come into the synagogue, they would give an open ear to that prophet that would come. And I'm sure that they had heard numerous teachers that had come along to that synagogue. But Jesus came in a different manner and in a different fashion with different words of wisdom that pricked their hearts of unbelief. He was also in His own hometown. And they couldn't put two and two together. When they saw Jesus standing there, attributing these things to Himself, the people couldn't figure it out in their own mind. It's what caused them to have this heart of unbelief. It was too familiar. Familiarity. They were too familiar with Jesus. We saw Him get His hands dirty as a carpenter. We saw Him building houses here in our, in our town. We saw all of these things that Jesus did. Taking care of His family. Doing those things that He did. We witnessed those things. And you're standing here as Messiah? Jesus knew that in His own hometown, that it was going to be a place of unbelief. But not for all. There were some that did believe. We know that Jesus healed a few sick. 
We know that He did a little bit of miracles there in that city. But there were many that would not believe. The many that remained in unbelief. But it also tells us, look at verse 5. It says, Now Jesus could do no mighty work there, except that He laid His hands on a few sick people and healed them. He couldn't even do like what He was doing over in Capernaum. Because the people that were there were many of them that were in unbelief. There was no faith that was just you know, rolling around throughout the, the town there of Nazareth. And it makes me wonder sometimes when I think about church. I think about our church. I think about the place that we're all in. And we want to be people of faith. We want to be people that are, are wanting to trust God with things. We want to see God move in our midst. We want to know that God answers our prayers when we lift up prayers. We want to see God do things in our midst. But do you know what will hinder God? If we approach God with little faith or no faith, you know, God wants to grow that faith in us, but we can hinder what God wants to do in this place. You know, I'm, I'm relying upon the fact that when I teach the Word of God, when I get up here and I teach the Word of God, that you're growing in your faith, but you also need to take steps of faith. And you know what? You're only going to benefit me. I like that. I'm going to benefit you if I'm growing in my faith. You're going to benefit me. You're going to benefit one another because this is going to be a church where we believe in our God. That our God is able that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same God that did miracles and things then. He wants to do those things in our midst. He wants to save people's lives. He wants to touch those people that you love. He wants to use you by the power of His Holy Spirit. But God, help us that we would not be people that hold you back from what you want to do because of our unbelief our little faith. Look at verse 6. And Jesus marveled. Here it is. Here's Jesus now with the people of this city of Nazareth. He marvels at them because of their unbelief. And then we're told that he went about the villages in the circuit teaching. We're going to pick that up next week. We're going to see how Jesus is going to call his disciples to himself. He's, he's now at a point in his discipleship with them. That he's now going to be sending them out on their own. Jesus came into the city knowing really what he was going to expect. He didn't walk out of the city all bummed out. I'm sure he was saddened by their unbelief, but he didn't come unexpecting that the people were just going to receive him and be thrown, you know. He knew. There was training that was going on with these disciples right now. A prophet is not without honor except in his own country. They were witnessing that. They saw how little fruit was happening there in Nazareth. Disciples saw that, how there was a rejection of the Lord. But the people over in Capernaum, man, they were just thronging him. They were all around him, man. Miracles were happening everywhere. People, you know, but not here in Nazareth. It's interesting that Jesus 
he marveled at their unbelief. And I looked up that word, marveled at unbelief, and I only found two times that Jesus ever marveled. And I shared them with you already this morning. He marveled one time at the, the, at the uh, centurion's great faith. And then he marveled here with their unbelief. To make Jesus marvel at something. Faith and unbelief. We have a Lord. We have a Savior. We have a God that does so many things that are worthy of our marveling at. I mean, it, it, it makes me wonder, when is the last time you marveled? It's something that the Lord has done in your life. That he did something so incredible in your life that it caused you to marvel at how great he is. I looked at that word marvel and I found it 34 times in the New Testament. Six of those times are in Mark's Gospel. But every time that you see this word marveling, except for those two times with Jesus, it was always that the people marveled. Or everyone marveled. Or the multitudes marveled. Or those in the synagogue marveled. Or the disciples marveled at Jesus. Or the governor marveled greatly. And even Pilate himself marveled at Jesus when Jesus stood before Pilate. He even knew that there was something about Him. It makes us ask the question, why would anyone struggle with unbelief? Why would anyone even struggle when they, when they see how gracious and merciful and loving God is. Jesus is. When they, they see the changed lives by Jesus. I mean, why would anyone struggle with that? It's because we have a heart. And we have, we have pride. And we have those things that stand in the way. And you know, unbelief, it's, it's, a, it's, an un, it's a, dangerous, a dangerous word. And the reason why it's so dangerous is because it has to do with a person's destiny. We read in the book of Romans how the Jews, in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, if you look at those three chapters... You'll read in chapter 9 of Romans about Israel and their past rejection of Jesus Christ. If you read in Romans chapter 10, you're going to read about Israel present day today, that they are living in unbelief. If you look at Romans chapter 11, you're going to read about Israel future. What plan does God have for the nation of Israel in the future in their unbelief? God is still going to save a remnant of His people. Is there a remedy for unbelief? There is. But we need to pray that God would open up eyes of those that we love, people we're witnessing to, that God could change their heart 
turn them from unbelief to believing. I encourage you to read ahead. Uh, Starting in verse 7, we're going to be looking at Jesus calling his disciples to himself next week and then sending them out into this area of Galilee to be a witness for him. We're going to learn next week some of the, the do's and don'ts of being a witness for Jesus Christ. What, 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 what Christ, how he wants to work through us. Work through us and make us powerful witnesses for him. And so read ahead on that. Let's have the, uh, the worship team come up. Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for your patience in our life. We thank you for how gracious and merciful you are towards us, that you are towards mankind. Lord, your word says that you're not willing that anyone would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's your heart. And we thank you for that sacrificial love for us, for this world, that you gave it all up, Lord, that we might have eternal life. Father, I pray that you would help each one of us here this morning if there's areas of doubt, if we're lacking faith in some area in our life right now, if we're finding it hard to trust you for something, God, would you help our unbelief? Lord, you were very gracious with your disciples when you said to them, why are you so fearful? Why are you so fearful? Why are you still with no faith? Why are you still of such little faith? God, would you forgive us for not applying ourselves to grow in our faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Lord, would you stir our hearts this morning? Would you do something extraordinary in our, in our lives this week that you might get our attention, that we might look to you in, 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 a, in a stronger way this week, that you would give us opportunity to be a witness. Open doors, open blinded eyes, Lord, and let us seize the opportunities that you put before us. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's all stand.